In recent years, the Barna Group did an extensive survey in which they asked non-Christians why they rejected Christianity. And 85% of them said they did so because of hypocrisy. Has that ever been an obstacle for you? Have you ever heard anyone say, I will never become a Christian? They're all just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, of all the charges leveled against Christians in almost any age, this one, I think, is particularly intriguing. Discovery of the sexual affair of a pastor or a politician who's a professing Christian becomes instant fodder for the media. The press loves it, and they don't hold back. They don't pull any punches. But if it's discovered that someone not associated with Christianity was committing adultery, it barely even gets noticed. And it's unlikely that anybody is going to accuse them of hypocrisy. And all of this is something very interesting. People think there should be righteousness. If there was not some expectations that Christians should be different, you couldn't charge them of hypocrisy. In many religions of the world, there is no necessary tie between what one believes and how he or she lives. But in Christianity, there is. And it's really significant that the world recognizes that there ought to be. Last week, we saw that John's main point in his letter of 1 John is that we can be sure that we have eternal life. We can be certain that we have God. How can one be sure of this, how this certainty can be, is evidenced through three tests that go all through John's letter. Doctrinal test, how do you believe the truth about Jesus? The moral test, do you obey the commands of God? And the relational test, do you love the people of God? Well, last Sunday, we considered this first test. This morning, we're going to look at the second one. And then, Lord willing, we'll look at the third one three weeks from today. So as we consider John's second test, we see that these truths about Jesus must affect the way that we live. These truths about Jesus that we believe have got to affect the way in which we live. We, we see this clearly in 1 John, and, and if you're not already there, I invite you to, to the letter of 1 John near the, the back of the New Testament. Notice in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So according to John, the most orthodox person in the world who affirms Everything he says about Jesus to be true is not a Christian if, if his or her right thinking is not tied together with right living. 
we must recognize that it's possible to pass the doctrine test but not have eternal life. And that's a sobering thought. It's a sobering reality that we dare not miss. So as we believe the truths about Jesus, we must also obey the commands of God. Now John references this all throughout his letter. But the passage that seems to hit with the greatest level of direct force, the kind of the greatest level of intensity perhaps, is found in chapter 2, 28 through 310. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In these verses, John gets at the heart of this moral test, and he lays it out in black and white. In fact, I think John's even more clear-cut than what appears in our English translation. The, the translation we have, everyone who makes a practice of sinning and everyone who keeps on sinning, is the translator's attempt to highlight the present tense of the verb. But, but I think the more literal reading of everyone who sins, everyone who does not sin, like in the King James Version, better captures John's intent in this passage. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. In these verses, we see four antithetical pairs with the same structure in opposite themes. I think it's helpful just to kind of see it all laid out. 29b, everyone who acts rightly has been born of God. 4a, everyone who sins is really doing sin. Everyone who abides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has never seen him. 
Everyone who acts rightly or practices righteousness is truly righteous. Everyone who sins belongs to the devil. And then everyone born of God does not sin. Everyone who is righteous does not belong to God. I'm sorry, everyone who's not righteous, doesn't act rightly, does not belong to God. John isn't sugarcoating this, is he? He lays it out in about as stark of a contrast as possible. And if you find this to be a little bit unsettling, it's okay, but, but don't let your mind try to resolve all the tension quite yet. We'll address that later. But what we must do first is come to terms with what John is saying in these verses and seek to understand why. Why is it that one who truly believes in Jesus must live a certain way? John gives us two reasons in this text. First, we must obey the commands of God because of what Jesus did. Because of what Jesus did. Verse 5, we see that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. Chapter 1 and verse 7, John writes that his blood shed on the cross cleanses us from sin. Chapter 2 and verse 2, which we looked at last week, we see that Jesus is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sin. This echoes John, his gospel, the gospel of John, verse 129, where Jesus is the perfect, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus came not only to bear our sins, but to abolish them. The second thing we see here that Jesus did was destroy the works of the devil. We see that there in verse 8. The reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil. What, what are the works of the devil? Well, John Stott notes that morally, Satan's work is enticement to sin. Physically, the infection of disease. And intellectually, his work is the seduction into error as he blinds the mind of unbelievers. And we know that since the devil still assaults our soul, our bodies, and our mind, his works are not, in an absolute sense, destroyed. This is one of the places in Scripture where we see an already, but not yet. The works of the devil have been nullified, they've been deprived of their force, conquered and overthrown. Although he is still busy doing wicked works, he's been defeated on the cross. And in Christ, we can escape his tyranny. So when we truly recognize that Jesus came to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil, we, we're starting to see why. Why those who claim to believe in Jesus, those who have eternal life, obey God's commands. So I wonder if you're here this morning and, and you feel the bondage of sin, a desire for that which your conscience tells you is wrong, that which you can't seem to get free of despite of your repeated efforts. There's good news here because Jesus came to take away your sin, to destroy the very thing that is killing you. He came to make you a slave 
of righteousness. So, so stop believing the devil's lies. Stop falling for his empty and deceptive promises. Let go of your sin and turn to Christ and place your trust in his finished work on the cross. The second reason we must obey God's command is because of who we've become. Because of who we become. John tells us here in verse 9, we've become children of God. We have been born of God. John uses this verb 10 times in this letter. In his his gospel, chapter 1 and verse 12, he explains it even more clearly and and a bit further. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Note in verse 9 that in this birthing process, God gives us his seed. His seed abides in him. So John is saying that the reason why those born of God can't sin is because God's seed remains in them. While this word seed is used throughout the Bible, both literally and metaphorically, this is the only place the specific expression God's seed is found. And there's various different interpretations of what it means. Could be God's nature, his word, or his spirit. It's hard to know for sure precisely what it means here, but I think most likely it's some combination of those three ideas. God's seed is that new life born of God, given in Christ, communicated by the Spirit, and realized in practice of the proclaimed word. So John is saying here that because God, who is totally free from sin, has birthed you, and because his seed remains in you, sin has no place in you. Several months ago on a Sunday night, Keith Kresge spoke on this text. And he shared an illustration that I found really helpful. Let's pretend your father was William Wilberforce, who spent his life opposing the slave trade in England and led the successful effort to get it abolished. Imagine that you're 16, still under your father's authority, and as you start saving more and more money, the one thing in the world you're never going to spend it on is a slave. The thought wouldn't even cross your mind because of who your dad is. This is true even when you got lots more money. Your classmates all own slaves and there's a slave market not too far from your house. You really could use the help. Doesn't matter. In your father's words, you are a Wilberforce. In your father there is no slavery, and he appeared to take away slavery and to destroy the works of the slavers. 
since we're born of God, like father, like son, we cannot associate with his sworn enemies. The son of God came into the world to destroy gossip, laziness, hatred, violence, pride, selfishness, lying, theft, and idolatry. And we all reproduce in our lives a family likeness. And what John is saying here is that those who are born of God don't sin. One does what one is, or is stated by law, doing is a test of being. Doing is a test of being. I wonder this morning, have you been born of God? Have you personally experienced this divine miracle of the new birth? Does your life reflect the character of God? If not, John says that you are a child of the devil and a slave to sin. But through Jesus Christ, God has graciously made it possible for you to be his child and experience freedom from sin. I encourage you this morning, repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and ask God to grant you the gift and the miracle of the new birth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how often do you actively consider the wonder of being a child of God? We should want to see, understand, appreciate, consider, and meditate, meditate on it more and more. We should want to explore its depths, its origins, its outworkings, the means and operation of it, and its effects upon us. There is an infinite amount for us to explore in our new birth. And it's important to realize that this is the objective source of our assurance. How, how is it we know we have eternal life? We look at the rebirth, the new birth, the divine activity of God that has brought us into being. This is the only thing capable of keeping us as his children. Nothing else could have brought us into his family, and nothing else can keep us in his family. So if you've been truly born of God, your security must never be a result of your activity or how you may feel. It can only come from God's activity. As one has said so well, you are not called to believe in your love to God, but in God's love to you. So our assurance of eternal life must always be anchored to what Christ has done, not to anything that we do or don't do. So we've seen thus far that because Jesus came to take away sin, because he came to destroy the works of the devil, and because God has given new birth to his children and his seed remains in them, Christians don't sin. In fact, they can't sin. 
How does that hit you? Do you feel any tension in this? Well, I sure do. And it naturally leads us to ask, okay, is John teaching that there's some sort of sinless perfection that's possible? Certainly not. We must dismiss that thought right away. For as he says in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says there in those early verses, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're liars. We make God out to be a liar. The proper thing John says to do is to confess our sins, not deny that they're there. So which is it? Which is it, John? Has he really contradicted himself in such a short span of writing? Well, a lot of suggestions have been proposed to try to resolve and soften this tension. Some say John's referring to specific kinds of sin, but, but there's zero indication of that in the text. Some say, well, maybe John's here thinking of elite Christians. Most don't sin, but some do. But John says everyone, not some. Some suggest that John is speaking of what we will be on the last day. After all, verses 2 and 3 are looking forward to that. One day, all who were born again will be sinless. That is true. But verse 9 in its context is talking about Christians here and now, not what we will be. Many think, and, and perhaps the majority of people think, that John means that Christians do not or can't habitually sin, even though there are occasional lapses. They may sin now and then, but you can't continue in sin. And this is the sense that's conveyed in our translation, which brings out the present tense of the verb. This is certainly true. But, but as I stated before, based on my limited study and one conversation with one of the few bona fide Greek scholars that I know, Brian Blazowski, I don't think that even this is the solution. I think the key to understanding this seeming contradiction is something far more important. You see, in this entire section, John is not arguing for the impossibility of sin, but for the incongruity or the inappropriateness of sin in the life of the Christian. Sin is not impossible, but it is utterly inconceivable. C consider this illustration. Tom grew up in a home where his dad regularly mistreated his mother in many ways. He came to see its devastating effects, and he swore that if he ever had a family, things would be very different. He later married, became a father, and was extremely attentive to how his son treated his mother. One day when his son James was 10, he heard him in the kitchen yelling at his mother, You're so mean, Mom! I just don't understand. Johnny's mom lets him swim in the river 
And if you really love me, you would let me too. Father Tom entered the kitchen and with a sternness on his face and an intensity in his voice that his son had never experienced before, he said, Son, we do not disrespect mom. You cannot do that. James replied, Oh yeah? I just did. That's true, son, but you are entirely missing the point. The fact that we don't disrespect mom is true if patterned off me, your father. Because I'm the father and I make the rules and enforce them, what I'm saying is true. We do not disrespect mom. You cannot disrespect your mother. So I think in a similar way, John is saying people who've been born of God don't sin. They can't. Sinning is not done here. Every single time a blood-bought, twice-born child of God sins, it's unnatural, it's abnormal, and it's inexcusable. And we've got to grasp that. We've got to grasp this because if we don't, we're not going to fight our sin. We will not press on to purify ourselves to be holy. You'll be okay with letting your eyes wander or letting your mind have a few, few hours roaming in the gutter. You'll nurture your bitterness and foster hate. You'll think that since you're an anxious person, worry and fear is natural and therefore not really a big deal. You'll use your tongue to cut down others. You'll remain in a sinful relationship because it feels good. You'll stop trying to express Christ-like love to your wife or submit to your husband because it's hard. Or you'll do all that you can to get around your parents' rules. And then you'll say, but you know, I'm not fully transformed yet. We all sin, right? John is saying no. No, no, sinning is not done here. You can't sin here. You've been born of God. Christians don't sin. You can't sin. And saying, oh yes, I can, totally misses the point. Sinless in Christ as a child of God, yet we sin all the time. This tension is part of the entire Christian life. And the final resolution will only come when Jesus returns and we shall be like him, free from all our sin. So authentic Christian obedience is not sinless perfection in this life. Rather, it is, a, it is a desire for and a growing success in obedience in the practice of righteousness. A growing desire for and a growing success in 
the desire for obedience in righteousness. As opposed to a desire for and the ongoing practice of sin. So, so that's the contrast here that John is giving us. There, there's two really short quotes that, for me at least, captures this so well. Plummer says, although the believer sometimes sins, yet not sin, but the opposition to sin is the ruling principle of his life. And then in the words of law, the Christian's whole life is one of truceless antagonism to sin. That's a great phrase. Truceless antagonism to sin. Seeing sin as a cruel and destructive enemy that we've got to always fight and never, never being content to make a truce with it. So the moral test, do you obey the commands of God, could perhaps be asked more precisely, do you have a desire for the practice of righteousness? Are you experiencing growing success in the obedience of God's commands? If so, this is evidence that you've been born of God. There's evidence here that you are experiencing eternal life. But if not, there is good reason to question whether or not you are a genuine child of God. David Pallison so helpfully has said, the pattern of our life and growth as Christians is like a yo-yo. You guys ever play with a yo-yo? Up and down, up and down, up and down. So thinking of our Christian life that way can be pretty depressing, can't it? But then he continues. The pattern of our life and growth is like a yo-yo in the hands of a man walking up a flight of stairs. We'll close this morning with three strategies to consider as we strive to obey God while living in this tension of being those who don't sin, yet we still do. First, and most important, we must run to your advocate. Run to our advocate. Notice the first verse in chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is our advocate. So, so when we sin, the Father observes that we are sponsored by Christ. That's what the word advocate means. We're sponsored by Christ. And God is then persuaded not to reject us, not to hold us as guilty. We are unqualified to plead our case before God because we're sinners. But the risen Christ does so on our behalf. For he alone is righteous, and he alone paid for our sin through his own death. So in the words of McShane, 
For every one look at yourselves, take ten looks at Christ. We must always confess our sin and run to Jesus, who is our advocate. Second, we must identify our idols. The, the last verse of this letter we looked at last week, chapter 5, 21, where John ends with the simple command, little children, keep yourself from idols. And without reviewing everything we talked about last week, there's just one point here as it relates to this, is, is the fundamental problem in all lawbreaking is always idolatry. Always. Think of any sin, any violation of God's law, underneath that somewhere is an idol. Somewhere under that is the rejection of Christ as Lord and worshiping a false savior, an idol. And if we only fight our sins on the level of behavior, there's not going to be any lasting change. We must get below the surface and deal with the idols. Deal with the reasons why we violate a particular commandment and identify the false saviors we're trusting in more than Christ. If you want to read more on that, how all of our sin is somehow tied to idolatry, there's an article by Tim Keller called How to Talk About Sin in a Postmodern Age. Really helpful, explains this well. How to Talk About Sin in a Postmodern Age by Tim Keller. And then third, involve others. Involve other people. Diedrich Bonhoeffer noted that sin demands to have a man by himself. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. God's given us the church for a reason. Our walk with God is a community project. The Christian life is deeply personal, but it's not private. We need each other in our fight of sin. Others can help us identify the idols fueling our sin. So, so we're, we're so often blind to our idols. Other people can help us see, hey, this is, I think, what you're really wanting here. And then others on perhaps a more positive side. Others can help us see the larger upward pattern of God's working in our lives. Other people can help us see the ascent up the staircase when all we're seeing is the up and down of the yo-yo. Certainly, it can be really hard to talk about our sin. I'm not sure how many people that comes really naturally to or is easy. It's difficult, but sin is something we all have in common. If there's one thing we all share in common, it's sin. And too much is at stake to not discuss it with other people. The Indian activist Mahatma Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Well, after considering our text this morning, 
I hope that if you heard him say that, you would graciously respond with something like this. Gandhi, are you sure that whoever you're talking about are really Christians? For if they were, they would be like Christ. They would obey God's commands because of what Jesus did, taking away sin and destroying the works of the devil. And they would obey God's commands because of who they've become. They're children of God. True Christians have been born of God. His nature, His Word, His Spirit remain in them so they look like their Father. Therefore, sin is absolutely inconceivable for Christians. They don't sin. They cannot sin.